Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Last month, the discovery of 751 unmarked graves at a former residential school in Saskatchewan, Canada, sent shockwaves throughout the country. It shined a spotlight on Canada's historic mistreatment of its indigenous population. Current estimates are that between 10 to 50,000 indigenous children were taken to church-run residential schools intended to erode native languages and cultures in the 18th and 19th centuries. The shockwaves from the discovery reverberated throughout the Americas, where indigenous people continue to face discrimination and unfair treatment. Today, our panel will discuss the history of indigenous cultural assimilation and erasure throughout the Western Hemisphere and recent efforts to reckon with that history. Let's bring in our panel. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hey there, John. Brazil Institute Associate and Slater Family Fellow, Anya Prusa. Hi, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hi, John. And Mexico Institute Director Andrew Redman. Hi, John. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back. And Chris, if we can begin with you with the return to a focus on Canada, what can you tell us about the grisly discoveries, how they've been interpreted by Canadians, and what they mean for Indigenous populations in Canada today? Well, this is a, a terrible story, John, and, and one that I think really uh, has most Canadians quite upset. In fact, we just celebrated Canada Day, you know, July 1st, and a lot of celebrations were cancelled because people were just feeling so blue about the country. When Canada was settled, the European settlers found a largely nomadic Indigenous population, and so the two communities would just tend to move around each other, interact from the very beginning with the fur trade and on through, uh, on through Canadian history. But most of those native groups eventually signed treaties with the British crown. Um, that meant that they were connected to the federal government. And the federal government was in some ways responsible for them and for their well-being. Over the years, they tried different ways of improving the economic lot of Indigenous people, trying to help them to participate more broadly in Canadian society. And residential schools were an attempt that started in the, uh, in the 19th century with the idea that by getting an education in English or French, they could mainstream and participate more fully in the Canadian economy. But in the process, as your intro set up, uh, what happened was a lot of their own cultures were being sort of erased. They were taken away from their families, lost traditional ways of learning about their people, about their communities. And uh, essentially, they, they were like immigrants into their own, their own country uh, trying to fit in. And the result was, was tragic. And obviously, we, we now see that tragedy in unmarked graves where some of the the kids who did not make it um whether it was through violence at the school whether it was through suicide and depression uh both of those were definitely factors um they were left in unmarked graves which however you view the attempt to mainstream these these kids 
leaving them in unmarked graves, unknown to their parents, with no acknowledgement of their even existence, is, is, a, is a crime. And uh, most Canadians are just sick over it, including Prime Minister Trudeau. Chris, uh, you, you see the reception to revisiting painful history in the U.S. play out in this raging debate over critical race theory that, you know, is largely being fought on cable news or on the Internet. But so it, it's hard to understand how seriously to take that. Uh, but it, what what are we seeing is uh, from Canadians in regards to revisiting painful history? Well, I think there's a lot of goodwill to have this conversation, but it's a very difficult conversation. Canada refers to its Indigenous people as their First Nations because they were nations in what's now Canada before either the English or the French arrived, the famous two nations that formed Canada. And there's been an honest attempt to try to reconcile with these communities, but it's a very diverse set of communities. So, for example, the Cree and the Iroquois and the Mohawk, who are in the area around northern New York and Quebec, They've had a much more successful mainstreaming experience and a better relationship eventually developed with their uh, Quebec community. And the provinces play an important role here. Uh, the Cree success largely came through Hydro-Quebec building a giant hydroelectric dam on their land. And they received rent for that land, which helped them to develop economically. In other parts of Canada, land rights have given individual native groups the chance to sell off logging rights or or allow oil exploration or even ecotourism on their territory because they have a clear claim to the territory. But there are a lot of communities that don't even have that, that are really struggling um, on the margins of society and in relatively cold and inhospitable places. So I think that's been a real problem. The other, the other thing, though, and you can see this in the government today, just last week, the prime minister announced that Canada would have its first indigenous uh, governor general in uh, asking Mary Simon, a woman who uh, comes from Iqaluit in the north, who is a uh, Inuit, uh, to become Canada's first representative of Queen Elizabeth II in Canada, but as a native person. And uh, this is something that I think a lot of Canadians see as turning the page, showing respect for these communities, but you can't undo the damage that has occurred for decades. And and of course, you know, this is both a historical discussion and a, and a current discussion. And thanks to our crack research team, we could tell you that Eight percent of the Western Hemisphere would qualify as indigenous, and that's about 50 million people. Benjamin, reactions from around the Americas to uh, the, the horrible discovery in Canada? Yeah, I'm not sure it resonated directly, you know, though we include Canada as part of this program. Um, it's not always seen as a member of the, of the Latin America community. Um, but I do think these issues are very present in Latin America for certain. And so the idea that indigenous peoples have been historically marginalized and worse um, is certainly no surprise in Latin America, where there's a, a long history of brutality um, against the native peoples of this hemisphere with consequences that are very much experienced by these communities today. Andrew Rudman. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I, I think similar to what to what Benjamin said, uh, this particular this story maybe doesn't resonate a lot in Mexico, but dealing with that whole question of uh, of how indigenous rights should be handled is is definitely something that that has come up off and on over over the past centuries. The, the Zapatistas in in ninety four, right around the entry into force of NAFTA, were maybe the most prominent episode. That's a, now quite a few years ago, but there have been many 
smaller incidents of late. And, and President Lopez Obrador has raised this issue at one point, suggesting that the Spanish owed reparations to Mexico for the, the conquest 500 years ago. So the, these are issues that, that resonate, I think, in different ways in, in Mexico and, and around the hemisphere. Anya Prusa, we'll get your general reaction, and then I have a specific question for you as well. Well, just echoing what, you know, Benjamin and Andrew have said in in Brazil, um, you know, this dates back to the colonization um, and the presence of, you know, a slave trade that initially relied on indigenous communities for forced labor. And later on, you know, Jesuit missionaries who, who really brought indigenous communities into aldeas, you know, small reservations that were ostensibly to protect them from the slave trade, but also included, you know, conversion and um, education that was designed to, you know, quote, civilize, but also to really force these communities to lose touch with their traditions and, you know, also remove them from their traditional lands. Anya, the specific question I wanted to ask you is about the Amazon. Uh, You know, there's an issue here that is of global concern, although uh, Yar Bolsonaro uh, would like to keep it as a, a local issue. Unfortunately, the world sees it differently, and it often uh, affects indigenous populations. Can you describe to us what, what the tensions are there? Yes. Yeah, so Brazil's 1988 constitution actually gives indigenous peoples a right to their lands, and it's about 14% of Brazil's territory um, that is you know, essentially considered traditional indigenous territory. Um, And this has created some tensions, uh, including with the current government, who sees this land as being unproductive. Um, And so they're very interested in in developing. Um, There's actually a law before the Brazilian National Congress right now that would open up indigenous territories um, to, you know, mining, logging and other extractive industries. And this presents real problems, right, for the indigenous communities on these lands, which are their traditional ancestral lands, you know, guaranteed under the Constitution. Um, And they face significant threats, um, not just from, you know, the economic activities kind of encroaching in their own communities, but also threats of violence. Um, So we're seeing, you know, illegal miners who are setting fire to indigenous villages. Um, Indigenous activists have actually been killed Um, in the Amazon basin as a whole. in, in 2020, over 200 indigenous activists were murdered. So that's, you know, one person every two days on average. Thanks. Uh, Benjamin, earlier Chris mentioned the new appointment in the Canadian government, and we've seen Deb Holland become the U.S. Secretary of Interior, the first Native American to become a cabinet member. Uh, do we see examples around the Americas of empowerment, political empowerment of indigenous people? We do see them, John. I mean, I think in general, they're exceptions. And the story of indigenous communities in Latin America remains a story of social exclusion and generational poverty. Um, and, and the results of persistent bigotry. That said, you know, Bolivia, for example, elected its first indigenous president, Evo Morales. He served from 2006 to 2019. A mixed record um, by any account, but, you know, a huge moment for that vast indigenous community and certainly an empowering election in Bolivia. But this year in Chile, where they're rewriting the constitution, the constitutional convention is being led by an indigenous individual. She's from the country's Mapuche indigenous community. Her name is Elisa Loncon. She lived in, in poverty in a remote village in the country's south. And now she's helping to guide this historic process to rewrite Chile's national constitution. So I think there are examples where there have been moments of empowering individual indigenous Um, figures in Latin America, again, even in a very difficult context. What could that new constitution mean for indigenous peoples in the country? 
it will mean, it appears at minimum, some kind of official recognition, which has been lacking. What you've seen in other cases, for example, in Bolivia is new constitutions that are written that explicitly acknowledge the presence and history of indigenous communities and often offer rights to land and other you know, special privileges, including recognition of indigenous languages. That's something Chile has never done and appears poised to do now. And appropriately, it will be done under the leadership of an indigenous individual herself. Chris? I think it's important to note, too, that often indigenous communities are drawn into the larger debates about society. And it was a little bit more than a year ago when Canada was facing indigenous blockades on rail lines uh, across Canada in order to protest as civil disobedience uh, their the various conditions in which their communities had been kept. Prime Minister Trudeau had promised to address a problem of of many people in indigenous communities who didn't even have clean drinking water. But results have been slow to come. And so they they actually became involved in in politics, opposing things that were important for the rest of the community. So when you talk about the potency and, and the, the ability of indigenous people to speak for themselves, it isn't always with a soft voice. Sometimes it, they can learn from other communities, other minorities and take action in, uh, in a still nonviolent way, but way that will get them attention if they're not accommodated. Andrew. Yeah, I, I, thanks, John. I, I think following up on what Chris said, the, the same has, has happened in, in Mexico with respect to the Tren Maya, which is AMLO's plan to build a new tourist and, and economic train in the southern part of Mexico, where it goes through lands that are owned by indigenous groups or where indigenous groups have lived for a long time. Uh, and there are also environmental activists and others. So that train is controversial for a number of reasons. But one is where it's going and whether the government has consulted with these groups, environmental groups, indigenous groups, the way they're supposed to. I think Chris's point is right on that these groups are involved in some cases, maybe whether they want to be or not, but they, they are pulled into the political dynamic. And, and I think in some cases they're not fully prepared for that. And, and that runs the risk of them being, frankly, being taken advantage of. Andrew, are there, there's the case of uh, Thomas Rojo Valencia, in the Yaqui leader in Mexico who was murdered. Uh, what does this tell us about uh, uh, indigenous sovereignty over, over territory? And is there a country that is leading the way in recognizing those types of rights? Or, or is this largely a story of exploitation? Um, I'm, I'm not sure about which country is, is best at, at recognizing the rights. I, I often would have, would have thought maybe Canada would fall high on that list. Uh, but in, in terms of Mexico, uh, specific case, I, I think what it shows is you have criminal groups, cartels and others who want access to, to land and they're not afraid to use violence to get it, partly because the, the system, the government isn't really capable of providing protection. So you have action with impunity. Anya, what does an indigenous population do when uh, the local government doesn't want to listen? Well, I think certainly with indigenous communities in, in Brazil and the Amazon more broadly, they've been incredibly effective at reaching out to international stakeholders and to other governments and, and really gathering support. Because, you know, indigenous communities in the Amazon play a real role um, in environmental stewardship and, and preserving the forest for the future. And so they have been quite successful at, at mobilizing international opinion and international attention um, to draw attention to the situation they face, the violence they face, and the rights that they seek. Benjamin, tell us about the recent comments from President Alberto Fernandez in Argentina 
and and what that might tell us about the persistence of prejudicial attitudes. Yeah, I mean, they were very unfortunate, not intended to be so, but but caused a lot of controversy in Argentina and beyond. Um, with apologies for, for reproducing the, the quotation, it was a reference that Mexicans come from Indians, Brazilians are descended from the jungle, and we, the Argentines, arrived by boat, and they were boats that came from Europe. I just think the casual bigotry of the remark really signals the way these communities are still viewed by elites in Latin America and certainly Argentina included. Again, the president apologized profusely for having said it, but I do think it was a unfortunately very revealing moment for the kinds of ways indigenous communities are still viewed in the halls of power, both political and economic in Latin America. You know, I always like to pull back the curtain on on production, what happens behind the scenes. And what our listeners don't know, because this is an audio podcast, is that we can see each other. And when you made your comment about casual bigotry, I saw every one of the panel nod in agreement. Uh, so I want to get your comments. If you could vocalize what you just expressed non-verbally, uh, why were you so quick to immediately associate with Benjamin's ideas? Other than, you know, they're Benjamin's usual brilliant ideas that we all want to associate with. Well, I think in in, in Latin America... Um, and perhaps around the world, we do see an erasure of indigenous communities and, you know, kind of the knowledge and contributions that they bring to our society. Um, so if you look at, you know, the comment about Argentina, there is, you know, in an indigenous community, you know, at one point it was larger, but there's this tendency to perhaps marginalize some of these communities. And you see it as well with Afro descendants in certain parts of Latin America, where they really aren't as acknowledged as part of the population. Chris Sands. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I think that the, the relationship with, with Native communities in Canada shows often a kind of, not, not quite as harsh as what Benjamin was talking about, a kind of desire to celebrate the Indigenous culture that gets it terribly wrong. Canada, like the United States, had a long history of um, cowboys and Indian movies. There were a lot of Canadian Natives who, participated in Hollywood films that became quite famous for those roles. And some of the listeners may know it's, it's big in the Midwest. There's a club called Kiwanis, which is part of that sort of indigenous celebration. And it was essentially Midwestern uh, uh, white guys on the, both sides of the Canada U.S. border who wanted to get together in, in like a social club, like the Water Buffalo Lodge and Fred Flintstone. It It's funny. I, I think this is, this is the trick with some of these issues. We don't know these native communities, these indigenous communities well, but we often in trying to show respect, actually sort of promote the stereotype or, or ask them to live in a kind of museum existence, just like they did a hundred years ago, rather than acknowledging that they're modern people too, and that they're able to participate contemporarily, not just as museum pieces or fictional characters in our uh, popular culture. Or on a reservation in the United States, isolated from their larger community. Andrew Rudman. I think that's that's right, John. And I, I, I was nodding at, at Benjamin's comment. I, a couple of things that, that immediately came to mind. I can remember in in grad school in sociology classes talking about how the goal in Latin American society was always to to marry up, which meant marry whiter. And I, I can distinctly remember a conversation about, okay, well, so one person is by definition marrying down. How does that work? What's the but just the fact that that was something people thought about, and the goal was essentially to get rid of that heritage. Um, I told Benjamin offline, I had a 
similar experience the first time I ever went to Argentina when I was asked what I was finding about Argentina and what I saw and, and the response to, to my response was, well, we're not a bunch of aboriginals. So just a, a complete effort to reject that 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 indigenous part of, of Argentine society. The same certainly happens in, in Uruguay, which like Argentina was largely populated um, by Europeans. So many of our discussions in the past year, of course, must acknowledge the fact that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Benjamin, what what does the inequities of addressing the pandemic reveal to us about the status of indigenous populations? Yeah, like many vulnerable groups, and, and Anya can certainly provide insights into this as well, indigenous communities have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. You could imagine Poor, excluded rural communities don't have access to very good health care, um, certainly don't have priority access to vaccines. And so when these communities have faced um, the incursions of, of outsiders, they've often um, encountered disease. Now, that, that should be a familiar story in the United States in the interactions between indigenous populations and, and interlopers who have come into those lands. And certainly we've seen that over the last year and a half. So, so you've now had the exposure to a virus that these communities shouldn't have been exposed to, coupled with the disastrous lack of health care in order to treat these populations. Anya Benjamin said you might have something to say about this. I'm going to follow his lead. We've certainly seen that being the case in Brazil. Our indigenous communities in the Amazon were hit incredibly hard um, by COVID-19 to the point where there were real concerns that, you know, a generation of elders um, and the knowledge that they possess, you know, could be decimated, right? because of this disease. So there was a real effort, you know, to, to make sure that vaccines were going to the Amazon, but obviously Brazil's vaccine rollout has been slow. So it is an ongoing challenge and an ongoing concern. As we move into our final minutes, I want to ask you, I know that you might get tired of my fixation on the whole trend lines question, but I'm always interested looking ahead. If you could identify what issues you see that are going to bring the plight or, or at least the, the needs of indigenous populations to the forefront in coming months and years. Uh, I know we've talked about some of them already, but any thoughts that you can add in our, in our final minutes? Chris, can we begin with you? Sure. I think one of the things that has is, is been fascinating in recent years is the United Nations developing a Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. When that first came before the General Assembly, four countries refused to vote for it, and they were the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, all with some difficult relationships with their indigenous populations. Since then, all four countries have come around. Canada recently announced it was going to introduce legislation to fully implement its commitments under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is unfortunately known as UNDRIP, which isn't very attractive as an acronym. But I think that's a challenge the U.S. will face as well, and that other countries that have signed on, but perhaps maybe in a, a paper commitment, but not a true commitment, look to making the words of that declaration actually meaningful in domestic law. Andrew Rudman. John, I, I think one trend that we, we need to look at is the, the, if you will, the consultation process that governments and the private sector enter into when they engage with these indigenous groups, when they're going to, for example, build some sort of a renewable energy facility, a solar facility, for example, where, um, there is a real, there is a need for that sort of energy, but I, I think whether the people with whom are being consulted really, frankly, are treated fairly and are understood is is really something we need to look out to. There's a lot of unscrupulous folks on, on both sides uh, of the line trying to take advantage of those groups. Anya Prusa. 
I think it's very important that, you know, as policymakers, as, as people who are thinking about these issues, that you, you include indigenous communities and indigenous voices at the very beginning of these processes, right? Um, and that they are real partners, uh, especially if you're talking about issues like the environment or land rights that have, you know, a, a significant impact um, on indigenous communities. It's really important that they're not an afterthought, that they're not just kind of brought in partway through the process to, to sign off. Benjamin Gadan, you have the final word. Yeah, I think the you know future of the treatment and rights of these communities will be determined by the communities themselves to some large degree. It'll be a question of their capacity for political mobilization. I do think, encouragingly, we have seen circumstances where the communities are mobilizing very effectively. I mean, if you look at Ecuador's presidential election earlier this year, it was an indigenous environmental activist who surprised many people by finishing third, nearly entering into the second round. And more recently, Ecuador's National Assembly elected representative of indigenous political party to be the president of the National Assembly for the next two years. So I think there are encouraging examples where the community community is mobilizing effectively and these indigenous communities are are demanding rights that they very much are entitled to and have too long been denied. Thanks, Benjamin. Thanks also, Anya. Chris and Andrew, we look forward to learning more from you in future episodes. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz and Cecily Fasanella with the assistance of Emily Allen, Isabella Canava, James Chabin, Barbara Samadi, Manuela Jimenez, and Sam Vicroy. I want to thank all of them Their terrific work happens behind the scenes, but it makes those of us on microphone look and sound very good each week. So thank you very much. And of course, thanks to you, our faithful listeners. We hope you'll join us again next time for another edition. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.